Welcome to A New Legacy, where we have conversations about new visions for justice and healing in this era of mass incarceration. I'm Annie Nichol, and I'm here with my sister Jess. And today we're speaking with Jay Jordan, who is the newly appointed CEO of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Yes, Jay is an amazing advocate and organizer who has done some really incredible community work. And this conversation is actually longer than we typically would publish for a podcast, but his story is so amazing that we decided to actually release it as two episodes. This first episode is all about his story of growing up, you know, and getting into some trouble as a teenager and then being incarcerated under three strikes when he was 19. We also talk about Jay's political work and community organizing, which led to his political career with his early work as an advocate and mentor for at-risk teens and other crime survivors in his community. So this first episode mostly consists of his personal story, which has some really inspiring moments. Yeah, in fact, as you'll hear, he actually received two strikes for the same crime, which is not how that law was supposed to work. You know, three strikes was intended to be used in cases where people commit repeat offenses, not just adding strikes to a single crime. So unfortunately, Jay's story is yet another example of the three strikes law being misused, which has resulted in disproportionately harsh sentencing and incarceration for Black people. And we actually have a really interesting conversation with Jay about that toward the end of the episode. As for the second episode, we'll talk about some of the more effective community-based violence interventions that Jay's been a part of and what to do with this crisis of rising homicides, which we thought deserved its own episode. really does. Um, I'm curious, what were some highlights for you, Jess? So many amazing things. One highlight for me is when he talks about painting all those trash cans in the parks to clean them up and make the parks and playgrounds more usable and getting politicians and police officers to come paint trash cans. Right. <laughs> that was really great. I, I also want to call out his first 50 program, which was a youth organizing program that led to 100% high school graduation and college enrollment in its first year. I mean, so amazing. Okay, I'm going to read a quick and by no means comprehensive summary of Jay's bio. Jay Jordan has worked at the intersection of social justice and politics throughout his career. He serves as the Alliance for Safety and Justice's CEO, overseeing all of ASJ's state-based teams and reform advocacy efforts, as well as the Time Done National Director. Jay co-founded the organization's Time Done campaign to organize people living with past conviction records to eliminate the barriers to opportunity that block them from success. He previously served as executive director of ASJ's flagship state-based program, Californians for Safety and Justice. If you'd like to learn more about Jay and the incredible work he's done, please visit our website at anewlegacy.com to read his full bio and learn about the various projects and campaigns he's worked on. So you're the executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, an organization that has advanced important criminal justice reforms in California, like Proposition 47 and 57. Can you tell us about what brought you to this work and Californians for Safety and Justice? What was your background and what was your experience growing up? Oh, man, what brought me to this work? So 
have to take you all the way back. I am the son of a country preacher from Oak Muggy, Oklahoma, which I'm actually here now, and a city girl from Watts. And the reason I'd say where my parents are from, because it put things into some context. Oak Muggy, Oklahoma was my dad went to segregated schools. He was not able to drink out of the same water faucet as other folks. And he experienced what it was like back when Dr. King was marching for civil rights. My mom experienced segregation and racism in a different way, in Watts, over-policed. She lived through the Watts riots. She lived through Rodney King and the 94 crime bill and the tough on crime and the war on drugs and all that stuff that happened, she lived through. And so you have these two set of people coming together and growing their family in Stockton, California. That's where I'm from. And Stockton is not unique. It is like many other small to mid-sized cities um, and towns in America. In Stockton, the industry was government. It is government. The biggest employer in Stockton is the government. Part of that government is the criminal justice system. I remember my first interaction with the justice system was when I was in second grade. And I wanted coffee cake. I didn't have the 25 cent to get the other tray. If you don't have the money, you get the one tray. But if you have 25 cents, you get like the tray with the coffee cake. I don't know why they do this to kids. This is insane. Last one out the classroom, and there was a bunch of lunch tickets there. A quarter, you can buy two lunch tickets, and you can buy the other tray. And so I saw a bunch of lunch tickets. I took two lunch tickets. I went there, and I gave them to the lunch lady, got my coffee cake. I ate it. And when I got back, apparently somebody had saw me take these tickets. Now, mind you, I'm in the second grade, so I couldn't be no more than like seven, eight years old. I didn't think anything wrong with it at the time. And the teacher, when I came back, she was waiting on me with the person who saw me with another student. And she was like, Jaron Jordan, you thief. I immediately start crying. Oh, my God, I just disgraced my family. All this stuff is going through a second grader's head. So they send me to the principal's office and the school resource officer there. I remember the first thing that he told me was, hey, you don't want to grow up to be a criminal. And in some ways, it turned out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because 11 years later, I found myself in trouble with the justice system. Like, I had a great upbringing. I'm the last of eight kids. My dad was a local pastor. We did organizing and handing out clothes and chips and hot dogs to the community around our church in downtown Stockton. And so I didn't have a, a rough upbringing. There was a set of circumstances that happened that led me to prison. Fast forward to sixth grade, and I was at the church, and it was a Wednesday night, and my parents were in there praying. We heard fireworks, and we were in the parking lot in the car waiting for them to come out. They were almost done. And then all of a sudden, about two minutes later, a bunch of cop cars came in the parking lot, drew their guns out. And this was, had to be like a, a half a dozen cop cars. This is, again, no more than 11, 12 years old in sixth grade at the time. So we're walking towards these guns with our hands up here. And my dad just started going. I never heard my dad use these words before. And he says, these are kids, what are you doing? And their justification was, oh, well, we heard gunshots. Happened to be there was no gunshots, it was fireworks. And yet, here it is, they see black kids in the parking lot. Literally no facial hair, nothing. I looked 12. Fast forward, my next interaction with the cops was 16 years old, taking a bottle of Hennessy out of the store. And the cops, I was, I won't call it assaulted, but I was pulled out of a car. The dog was biting my leg. I really had a very different perspective of policing and safety because I just didn't trust the police at all. And, you know, from 16 to 18, I had my troubles. I was a young black kid trying to figure out where I fit in the world. I ended up leaving home early, getting my GED and hanging out with the wrong crowd. I had a substance abuse problem and I ended up getting involved with a robbery. And that was my introduction to the correction system. 
When I first went to prison, it wasn't a, oh my God, come to God moment. It was like the blacks are over here, the whites are over here, the northern Mexicans are over here, the southern Mexicans are over here, and the others are over here. It was extremely racialized and like very offensive racially as well. It's like, I'm black, you're white, you're Mexican, you're an other. I leaned into prison politics and for four years of my life, it was just survival. At the time I went to Solano State Prison in 04 to 08, if you go into the archives between 04, 05, and 08 in Solano, there was over a dozen mini riots or large-scale riots. These are hundreds of people fighting in these prisons. And here I am, I'm like, this is insane. And it's all racialized. That was my first three or four years, and I ended up getting caught up in some stuff in prison. And I did two years in solitary confinement from 08 to 2010. That's where things changed for me. I was in Tehachapi, and I'm a two-striker. When someone asked me, hey, who are you? And I ended up telling him, like, some street name that I had. And he says, no, ask what you are. Ask who you are. And from that moment on, things changed for me because I couldn't really answer the question. Because up until that moment, mind you, it was like either it was like church, you're Judeo-Christian, or you are a criminal, you're this, you're that. And none of it, like, really spoke to who I was. And really never, as I look back now, I never once had a teacher that, sat me down and was like, you are more than what you're purporting to be. I've never had a black teacher in my life, let alone a black male teacher in my life, someone who looked like me telling me this is what life looks like. I only had my dad and other mentors in my life that were great, but it was never like someone sat me down and said, hey, let's figure this out. And so that was the first time I actually thought about who was I. From then on, I literally read every book you could think of. I had my mom sending me all these types of books, and I went on this whole <laughs> introspective journey trying to figure out like exactly who I was as an individual and divorced that from like what society told me I was or what I thought I was. And I realized that a lot of the things that I was doing prior to prison, like I was just doing them because that was the thing to do. It was like I was drinking not because I liked to drink, it was because people were drinking. I was smoking because, not because I liked to smoke, it was because I would hang around people who smoked. I would, you know, go into stores and take stuff, not because I was a thief, it was because, hey, everyone else is doing it, or I don't have clothes, so let me go in here and steal a pair of shoes. And so, like, super innocent until it wasn't innocent. And I just truly wish that someone would have said, hey, man, you are more than that, you know? And that's why I'm a big proponent of mentorship. And so, fast forward, got out in 2012, and I had these grandiose plans. I went in a kid. I went in 10 months after my 18th birthday. I was a kid, right? Now I'm getting out 26 years old with all this wealth of experience of what real racism looks like, violent racism, violent implicit violence. Like, I've seen that. I experienced it. I participated in that. Like, having that experience and then coming on the other side saying, that is wrong. Prison is just not a good place for anyone to be in. How did you make that transition from being such a part of this racialized culture into reading these books and going into more introspection and wanting something different for yourself? Like, how did that happen? It was that one question. I think Maya Angelou said it best. She says that a question cannot exist unless the answer is somewhere out there in the universe. And all it takes is the right question to unlock these doors. I tell my dad all the time, a lot of what I am now is because the seeds he planted in me when I was four and five and six years old. If you look at it from a perspective of a seed and a tree, everything that tree is in that seed already. And so it was already in me. That question was like just super agitational because I really wanted to answer it. And so it was that one question. 
that sent me down that path. And then once I begin to look at every single thing that I've done in my life, and I had a long time to think about those things, it really got me thinking, like, hey, I don't know who I am, but I know who I want to become. Becoming Jay Jordan, the father, the husband, the leader, the, the son, the organizer, the community advocate, like that journey that I'm still on to become the best version of me every single day is what drives me. Like this is like, I think the poet laureate of America, Amanda, said best. This is not finished product here. Like we're imperfect because we're not finished. The excitement of knowing that I'm imperfect, but I'm imperfect because I'm on this journey was such a relief. Because just think about it. All throughout my life, from second grade, sixth grade, to when I was put out the car by the police when I was 15, 16, to then getting thrown in prison. Once you get labeled a criminal in this country, and that word criminal is a justification for dehumanization. Once you have that title, it justifies murder. It's why I advocate for police reformers because if Jay Jordan, the guy who was the Red Cross Hero of the Year in 2014, gets pulled over, the first thing you're going to do is, oh, he's a two-striker. Even though I haven't been in trouble in 17, 18 years, it still doesn't matter. I'm always going to be a criminal. And so that's what, to answer your question, Jess, that's what really, it was the agitational question, and then it was like the excitement of going on this journey and not having the weight of there is a finished product I'm trying to get to. It's like, no, you are imperfect and it's okay. You can be imperfect, but be the best imperfect human that you could be. I relapsed when I got out, right? I relapsed in the sense of my thinking because I had all these plans. I went to sell used cars. I went to sell real estate. I wanted to, you know, sell insurance. I wanted to open up a barbershop and become an entrepreneur. And I quickly realized that I couldn't do any of that stuff. None of it. Like everything I had on my list, I could not do at all. My friend was selling insurance. He was like, yo, this is, this is the money gig. You can sell insurance. Everyone needs life insurance and you'll be good. My felony d- denied me that. I couldn't become a barber, my felony. Couldn't sell cars, my felony. I tried to even volunteer at my nephew's school. Couldn't do that, my felony. And so I was like, I was devastated. And I was like, man, this is, what is this? I will always be a criminal. And that really, I was down until my dad was like, man, listen, your story is still being written. Your testimony is, is still being developed. And, you know, let this be a part of your testimony. Let this inspire people because you're going to overcome this. And I did. I ended up starting a mentor program in Stockton, and I was successful. Um, it was called the First 50, and we were able to take kids from one of the more troubled schools in Stockton, the high school, and, and take those kids and teach them about civics, teach them about life, teach them about Stockton. And some of these folks were not going to graduate, and it took us like 18 months, but every single one of them graduated. Every single one of them went to college. We were recognized over 37 times, American Red Cross Hero of the Year in 2014. And I ended up, I was blessed enough to start a small vending machine company that ended up being a very big vending machine company. And I sold it to start this mentoring program. And I didn't know anything about grants or anything like that. So I spent all my money, like, helping out with these kids. I literally used to open up my dad's church, and these kids would come, and they would do their homework, play with our sound system, and we would try to tackle problems in, in the community together. And I would teach them how to change tires and how to balance a checkbook, how to do community gardening, all these different things that they were never taught. And in turn, I felt like taking these and giving them something that I was never given, which was, hey, listen, this is where the world works and the world is not going to be nice to you, but you should be nice to the world and your positivity, you know, will shine bright. And so teaching them that, but also teaching them the components of society, the hard components. 
So the first project that I worked on was called We Can. And I was trying to like figure out how to get us some money because this is like the middle where I was like, okay, I'm spending all my money on these kids and I, I don't know where to get any money. So I'm trying to rack my brain on how to do grants. You know, I was, I was fresh. They just wouldn't leave me alone. So I'm like, hey, go to the park or something. Go play. And these are high school students. And they're like, no, the parks are dirty. I'm like, well, figure it out. I'm like, look, I'll go buy you some pizza and some ice cream. And when I come back, figure out how to fix these parks. And I was just literally like frustrated. I came back and they're all in a circle and they're hell excited. And they're like, hey, we got it. We got it. Intrinsic motivation. <laughs> and I'm like, intrinsic what? And like intrinsic motivation. I'm like, okay. Like, listen, people do things purely for enjoyment. And like, and like, look at this YouTube video, and it showed me this YouTube video of people using the stairs instead of the, the escalator because the stairs were made into piano keys. So they're like, well, if you paint the trash cans nicely, then people want to use them. We painted over 200 trash cans in 70% of the parks, and people were using the parks. We had city council members painting trash cans. We had, like, congressmen painting trash cans, police chiefs painting trash cans. And it was my first realization that something as simple as making something beautiful again was so transformative to me. That's what I wanted to do for them. With like, you guys are beautiful, you guys are powerful, you guys are inspirational, you guys are magic, and the world needs to see that. I ended up leaving Stockton because I just couldn't find a job. And all the kids graduated, like all of them, they graduated. Two years of working with us, like they graduated, and they like graduated, and they didn't go to community college, like which is great. They got accepted into colleges, and it was like, you know, I remember crying because I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And I ended up getting into politics. So I, I got tapped to be a field director for a congressional campaign. We won that campaign. I was still on parole, which was insane. And we won that campaign. I had since like built relationships with the DA in Stockton, Tory and Chief Jones, Chief Eric Jones in Stockton and the sheriff out there, Moore. I mean, we built relationships through the work with the kids. And so we had a lot of support, a lot of support in Stockton. And I never thought that I would be friends with judges and DAs and police chiefs. But doing the work with the kids and trying to make community better, it was very apparent that they were people, too. Right. And we had this common thread of wanting our community to be safe and people to be like thrive and be happy. And you know, I didn't care what they wore, like what badge or not. I was like, hey, come out here and paint some trash cans. You know what I mean? And don't bring your gun. Don't bring your badge. Don't bring your uniform. Just come out here and be a person. That would really shape me on how I think about the world now. Fast forward, moving to L.A., I moved to L.A. In, in 2015 because I just couldn't find a real job out there. No one would hire me because of my conviction after the campaign. It was just hard. Like, I couldn't find anything. Everyone had, like, these background checks you had to go through and guidelines. So I'm like, hey, we got to fix this stuff. This is crazy. I did all this stuff. I'm square one, and I moved out to L.A. homeless. Slept in my car, and I had some money saved up. I couldn't find an apartment because everyone did background checks. And I, and I ended up landing a gig at Pico, organizing mothers who had lost kids to gun violence in the Westmont area the shooter's parents and then, you know, the victim's parents around this community-based asset development strategy where we would bring folks together, talk about what is needed to prevent gun violence. And we did that for 11 months and CSJ came knocking. What do you think about taking Prop 47 to the next level and helping these millions of people with records get free and be able to um, access jobs and housing? I'm like, hey, this is me. Like, this is, this is great. How do you humanize people that are considered criminals? So everything that have, I've been through in my life, being called a criminal when I was in second grade for wanting coffee cake and taking lunch tickets to now what I do today, which is help people understand why 
someone with a past conviction is a human and deserves a second chance, if they've proven that they can operate in society successfully, is just a testament to God and to you know the universe and the way things just click. One thing that I'm extremely proud of in terms of policies is not so much on the time done side, which is our constituency of, of people with past convictions, thousands of people that we organize. It's actually on the survivor side. If you are a victim of violence in a home and you have to break your lease, that you can break your lease without penalty. And when we begin to run it, I felt really empowered because obviously passing laws is great and much needed. Like ensuring that someone's house who is shot up can actually move. Two close friends of mine, childhood friends, their house was shot up in Stockton. There's a lot of gun violence in Stockton. And they were struggling with their landlord to break the lease. CSJ stepped in and helped to relocate them and do all the stuff. I reassured them. They're like, man, this is a crazy law. There should be a law against this. I'm like, hey, we just passed a law. If this happens to anybody else, they'll be able to break their lease without a penalty. It's things like that that really inspires and empowers me to make change in real people's lives. Because a lot of times we divorce politics from real systems change. And what we do here is we're everyday people. We are who we serve. And the laws that I've been able to pass with like that being one of them, I can see the everyday impact and like how it's like between life and death. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've been so struck by since we started educating ourselves is that everything seems so interconnected. It's like you advocate for someone, you have to end up advocating for everyone. Crime survivors like us, in terms of people who have been impacted by incarceration, it's all so connected. And I think the first time we met you, Jay, was during a meeting you led about, you know, the possibility of changing the three strikes laws in California. And that was a really powerful experience to be in this virtual room with so many people who have been impacted by these laws. And you have a second strike. And so obviously this is a topic that holds special meaning for you. And I'm curious to know how you would like to see the three strikes laws changed. And how is it for you to talk with us, given our connection to these laws? First and foremost, thank you all for doing this. I think this is something that is needed. Quality, qualitative content around issues of public safety, I think, is how we get to where we need to be, of like transforming yeah. a system that is just does not necessarily make us safe. Here's the rub about the system in general and why three strikes just doesn't make any sense, right? We spend about $50 billion on this thing like every year from top to bottom. Prisons, police, the whole kit and caboodle, 50 billion in California alone, every year. About 13 billion on prisons alone. Since 1982, it's been about $1 trillion building this thing. And this is a lot of money we're talking about. And the whole thing, the whole thing only responds to crime after crime happens, right? None of it goes to preventing crime from happening. And if you ask anybody who's lost a loved one, you ask, what is the one thing that you really would love the system to do? And most people would say, we want this to not to happen to anybody else. We wish it didn't happen to us. We want this to happen to anybody else. So it's prevention. And if it's a system of public safety, how much of that should go to punishing people? Then how much of that should actually go to ensuring that this doesn't happen ever again? We get more bang for our buck to stop intergenerational cycles of trauma with three strikes. It just speaks to the reactionary nature of the system. We spent a lot of money because of three strikes. If you look at why the system has so many people in it, in terms of a disproportionate amount of black and brown folks, 
it's because of three strikes and gang enhancements. If you look at the numbers of three strikes, we are talking about upwards of 70 to 80% of people that get three strikes are people of color, right? If we're talking about what is the function of three strikes, right? At the beginning, it was supposed to be if you, you know, commit a crime three times, then three strikes, you're out. And that, for most people, is fair. When you look at the, the function now, I did one crime and I got two strikes. How is that even possible? It's being used to ensure that the DAs have what they need to punish people to the furthest extent of the law. Right? It's not being used in the way that's supposed to be used. It's like, hey, if you do the same thing three times, then we're going to put you on pause for a little bit. Okay, this is a lever that DAs could use to just get people to sign these deals that are putting people in prison for a long time. Some stats that I think everyone should know, right? It's about 900,000 people are booked into jail every single year in California. This is only California. 900,000 people. The average prison sentence for a black person is two years longer than white people. 80% of people sentenced to life are people of color and disproportionately mentally ill. 92% of people sentenced to gang enhancements are people of color. And so if we're saying that the system that's supposed to keep us safe, that's supposed to hold people accountable, somewhere along the line of disproportionately churning out numbers, high numbers for black folks when we're only a smaller portion of society, did something wrong with that. And three strikes has a lot yeah. to do with that because you are seeing folks that are habitually coming into the system. They're not coming into the system for violence at first. A lot of folks come into the system for drug offenses and petty crimes. But then when they get these felonies on their record, what happens is people just can't reintegrate into society like I couldn't. Luckily, I have my parents and a, a support system, but I couldn't do anything. Just imagine if you don't have a support system. A lot of people will go and become homeless. A lot of people will go and become um, addicted to drugs. A lot of people have mental breakdowns. Most people that go into prison um, have had some sort of traumatic experience to begin with. Three strikes doesn't cut at the issue. All three strikes, is, it's like, it's, it's backwards. If the system is there to catch people when they are failing in society, then you would think if they're failing two times, you're like, wait a minute, let us ask you a different question. Let us ask you a question of what can we do to help you? That's what I want to see. That's what I think a lot of people want to see is, hey, if we have people that are continuously coming to you, if we were to do it like a hospital, and if a person were to come to the emergency room for the same thing, then you would say, what is causing this? In the criminal justice system, if someone comes three times for the same thing, we say, well, let's lock them up further. Let's lock them up for life. Yeah. And it does not make any sense because obviously this person is crying out for help. Obviously, it's like there's something wrong with this person and we need to address it. Right. If we're spending 50 billion dollars a year to keep us safe and people are continuously coming into the system and they're coming into the system with mental illness, drug addicted, living in poverty. And we're not addressing any of those three. And all we're saying is we're going to lock you up forever. <laughs> and then they get out and we give them felonies and they can't get jobs and housing. That's not a system that's going to work for anybody. The system is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, hey, we only respond to crime. We don't prevent crime from happening. Only 1% of the $50 billion go to support victims. The rest of it goes to maintain the system. And the system needs to maintain itself over and over. And that, for me, is why 
three strikes, gang enhancements, enhancements in general, the sentencing matrix, plea bargains, all of it. We need to take a long, hard look at it. Is this the most effective way we can be spending public dollars? Is this the most effective way to support survivors? Is this the most effective way to keep communities safe? And if you look at the data and historical analysis, you realize that it is the polar opposite. Thank you for listening in on this conversation. We're going to pause here and publish the second part of our conversation with Jay in a separate episode. But stay tuned here for a bit of a debrief of this episode from Annie and Me. I just want to say, Jay is such an amazing leader. I'm so grateful we got the chance to talk with him. Yeah, I think this conversation is such a good example of why it's important to be prioritizing the perspectives of people who have actually experienced incarceration and the issues we're talking about firsthand, you know, not just not just in a hypothetical way. Jay has obviously been on all sides of this, and I hope folks who listened can see that these are real lives that are being impacted by these policies. And I think that gets a little lost sometimes when we talk about these broad issues like crime prevention and public safety in such an abstract way. You know, Jess, did you know that the average age for people who are given a life sentence without parole in California is 19? I've heard that. And it's so terrible. Jay is an example of someone who got out of prison and has made such important contributions to his community. You know, he's the CEO of the Alliance for Safety and Justice now, which is the biggest crime survivor and advocacy organization in the country. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about what people can expect in episode two. Yeah, so part two is a conversation that's relevant to what's been happening in the headlines for the past six months or so, which is around rising crime rates. And this episode is super relevant to that because we talk about the kinds of interventions that can really help in these situations. And it felt like such an important conversation that we wanted it to stand on its own. We actually had this conversation with Jay about six months ago. And as you'll hear, he predicted many of the narratives around rising crime that are being sensationalized in the media again. And this was before any of it had really hit the headlines. You know, he saw it coming and he was unfortunately absolutely right about that. So in part two of our conversation, he really lays out what's happening, um, what people in vulnerable communities need and and how community-based support initiatives can really solve for much of the problem of rising violence and homicides. So please tune in for part two of our conversation with Jay Jordan. If you'd like to learn more about Jay and how you can support his work, please visit our website at anewlegacy.com. And again, thanks for joining us.